Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. 40 acres and a mule, that's what was promised to millions of the formerly enslaved in a post-Civil War nation. From those days until now, America has grappled with the idea of reparations for Black Americans. But in recent years, cities, towns, and states have moved to consider and move forward with reparations as atonement for America's cruel history of slavery. Now, Boston is recognizing there's an unpaid debt for more than 400 years of exploitation. The big question, what's the modern version of 40 acres and a mule? We always know that we're owed reparations. Only question is whether or not America is going to be so racist as not to pay us. A new seven-part podcast from GBH News explores what reparations might look like here in Boston, one of the oldest cities in America, and if there is an achievable plan for the rest of the country. Later in the show, at a time when single women couldn't own a credit card, becoming an airline stewardess offered young women a new independence. They had this cutting-edge job that allowed them to travel alone, go to foreign cities, go to domestic cities. One woman told us it was just nice to lie in bed all day in a hotel room and have nobody asking you for anything. Fly With Me chronicles the stories of the ambitious young women who bested a competitive field to become flight attendants and in doing so became unlikely activists for women's rights. But first, joining me now, Soraya Wintersmith, politics reporter for GBH News and host of GBH's Just Launch, What is Owed podcast. Hi, Soraya. Hello, Callie. Also with me, Jerome Campbell, senior producer for GBH's What is Owed podcast. Welcome, Jerome. Thanks, Callie. And Dr. William Darity, Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics, and the Director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Hi, William. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, this is a uh, rich subject. Uh, Saray, I'm going to start with you because you've been covering reparations as an ongoing story for some time before you Uh, decided to tackle the podcast and do a deeper dive. Um, What did you think, and you know actually from your reporting, is not really understood about reparations, just basically? I think before, I thought that folks didn't have a really great grasp of history, the history that informs the sort of statistics that we see about how Black people are disadvantaged in various ways, wealth gap, housing, education. I have, since beginning reporting, kept on referring back to a Pew Research Center poll that asks people if they believe that slavery impacts Black people in present day. And I think if I remember correctly, the answers, a great deal and or a fair amount, those two things taken together, the percentage answer was something high, like 60 or 65 percent. And so that has motivated me throughout this podcast to sort of ask 
the folks that we interview, what else is it that up until this point in history has sort of blocked America from considering reparations as a serious policy issue? Because for me, knowing that folks are aware that the legacy of slavery impacts Black people today, juxtaposed with the fact that we haven't really had a serious conversation until, I'd say, until Evanston, Illinois decided to become the first municipality to start handing out local reparations. These two things together means that there's some other factor informing the resistance that the country has had to putting in a policy that would help Black people catch up for years and years of exploitation and economic exclusion. Jerome, same question to you. I don't know if you covered this topic before, but what was your understanding about what people understood? I think I have to sort of echo Saray. I think it's under I think it's the ways in which when you dig into the history of reparations, it's actually it's been ongoing um since uh, uh since, since the the enslaved were freed at the end of the Civil War. Um I think that I know in preparations for this project, I talked with, you know, just uh, uh, I talked with a lot of people about what they knew about reparations. And I'm covering the I'm sort of uh, uh, supporting this project from California, where um, the state of California is also going through this process. So it was interesting to sort of be in the mix of seeing um, the state at work and, and talking with people and hearing how they were sort of coming to this information um, almost on first crack like I was. And I think through the reporting of this project, talking with people who are in the work, they really were able to sort of illustrate that um, all, all the ways in which reparations have been worked uh, worked for, for over the last couple hundred years, uh, whether if it was explicitly direct payments or um, different permutations of what reparations could look like. And William, you, of course, knew about uh, a lot about reparations from an economic standpoint. I think if anybody just sort of casually has some understanding about it, all they know about it is that there's money involved, um, though they may not have any good sense of what money and 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 how it uh, would be assessed in the end. I mean, that's part of the discussion you'll be having um, in this podcast. But uh, for you, as you were putting together that first article looking at the different approaches to the amount of money that would be fair, I mean, what were you hearing and understanding about what was understood or not understood about this piece of the story of reparations? Well, uh, if you're talking about the article that uh, I wrote with Denia Frank Francis that was published in 2003, I don't think we were hearing much of anything at that point. Uh, that was not part of the conversation. We were hoping that some of the work that we were doing would resuscitate or rejuvenate a conversation about reparations. Uh, but I think it laid fallow until uh, Tanasi Coates put out his article in 2014 in The Atlantic. Uh, and then there was a lull again until circa 2019, uh, when there were a handful of Democratic Party politicians who came forward saying that they endorsed reparations. So uh, there was very little in the air about how you would price a reparations program uh, when I first did some work on this with with Dania in in twenty in two thousand three, mm. so 
one of the driving motivations for doing the series, uh, Soraya, as you know, is that Boston is in the conversation. Um, and Boston got in the conversation because Mayor Wu announced we're going to have a committee, we're going to look at this uh, very carefully from a historical standpoint. And, um, and that was shocking to a lot of people. Talk about that a little bit. It was shocking to a lot of people. And in talking to the Boston branch NAACP president, Tanisha Sullivan, you really get this sense that for folks who are into policymaking, you must have a good sort of sixth sense for society's attention and their willingness to address an issue. And I'm not sure that without her good sense of understanding that in 2020 people were focused and perhaps willing to consider, I would say, one of America's oldest racial slash social justice ideas um, in a new way. And then without her having the political access that she had to Julia Mejia, who ultimately ends up carrying the legislation that becomes Boston's reparations task force, without those factors, I don't know that we would be uh, having the conversation or tracking some of the logical questions that come up when we think about a reparations program, if not for these women and their motivation to move it forward. And of course, the mayor to to sign it. All right, let's take a listen uh, from a clip from the first episode um, talking about that proposal for a commission to study reparations in Boston. Mejia made the proposal public in February of 2022. For almost 400 years, the history of Black Boston has been marked by segregation and injustice. We have witnessed segregation and injustice, but let's be clear, the solution to injustice is justice. And the solution to segregation is community coming together as one to fight towards a common goal. That is why we are filing this ordinance to create a commission to study and develop reparations. Sullivan says it all seemed pretty straightforward. We did so many other things. We did policing reform during this same time period. We did exam school admissions um, reform. I mean, th those arguably, like, and I was deeply involved in both of those. I didn't think those would get done. I thought this one would have been done. Um, and that just speaks to uh, sort of the delicateness around the subject of reparations that you've all um mentions so far about there's Tanisha Sullivan saying the, the the head of the NAACP local chapter that she thought this would have been done, but it's not quite that simple. I want to go on to add that uh, there are now a group of historians, Soraya, who are attached to this project as well, which was very important from Mayor Wu's perspective to make certain that the approach to this was actually a foundational in the history? It's an approach that we see in lots of different places that in order for a community to come to a common understanding about what it is that reparations should solve, there needs to be a historically informed and community shared process where everybody comes to maybe not agree, but at least understand the historical facts. Um, I think it's super important that when a government decides that it 
has something to own up for. People can always have opinions uh, about what it is that the government needs to own up for. But when we employ historians and economists and people who are trained to look at history, um, I think it makes the moving forward much more smooth. Now, William, I'm coming to you because you said you're dubious of local reparations projects. So uh, tell me why. I'm dubious about local reparations projects, and I'm dubious about state-level reparations projects. Uh, the central difficulty from my standpoint is that state and local reparations are intrinsically going to be incomplete, inconsistent, and inequitable. They'll be incomplete because they uh, cannot feasibly meet uh, a suitable bill for reparations, which I think has to be structured around the magnitude of the racial wealth gap in the United States, where wealth is the difference between what you own and what you owe, and the magnitude of that disparity between Black and white Americans averages $1.15 million per household, or approximately $400,000 per uh, per Black American whose ancestor was enslaved in the United States. And so um, that leads us to a total bill of approximately $16 trillion that would be required to eliminate that racial wealth disparity. And the total combined budgets of all states and localities in the United States uh, comes to uh, no more than $5 trillion. So. Uh, local and state reparations are necessarily incomplete. They're inconsistent because they are uncoordinated. So different communities are making different decisions about whether or not to have such a program, about what the program will look like, and about whom would be eligible to receive reparations. Uh, so there's inconsistency, and that leads in turn to inequity because there will not be uniformity of the kinds of uh, benefits that would be provided to eligible recipients. Um, and let, let me just add uh, that I think it is only the federal government that has the capacity to execute a program that would eliminate the racial wealth gap, but it's also the federal government that has fundamental culpability for the historical chain of events that led to this disparity in wealth that we observe today, ranging from the legalization of slavery itself to in the immediate aftermath of slavery, uh, the establishment of the Homestead Act of 1862 that gave one and a half million white families 160 acre land grants in the Western territories, while the newly emancipated freedmen were uh, denied the 40 acres that they were promised as restitution for their years of bondage. And then in the 20th century, the federal government moves away from asset building via, um, via land distribution to asset building by supporting home ownership. And it does this in a viciously discriminatory fashion so that we had the phenomenon of redlining and we also had the application of the GI Bill in such a way that the home ownership provisions went virtually exclusively to the white returning veterans and not to the black returning veterans. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Soraya Wintersmith, host for the GBH News podcast, What is Owed? Jerome Campbell, senior producer for What is Owed? And Dr. William Darity, professor of public policy at Duke University. We're talking about how the new podcast series explores the issue of reparations. So, Jerome, um, one of the things that... Uh, I understand that you you were quite taken with, and I too, and I think everybody will in listening to this podcast, is that we are having a conversation about this uh, subject as though it's brand new. And by that I mean brand new modern, like in modern times in the last you know, 20, 30 years or so, when in fact uh, what you all uh, – make clear in the podcast is this is a continuum. This has been a discussion. This has been activity that's that um, has been moved on in some instances and and discussed long before this new recent kind of modern uh, discussion about it. I think that as we were putting together the series and as we were, I think even just sort of imagining it, that seemed to be a thing that became sort of like a driving um, a driving idea throughout the se- like throughout the series. I think that when we were thinking about where to start, um, it was almost uh, surprising to say that there were so many places that we could have started. We could have, st- I mean, we talk. I mean, I, I know that we um, look at some of the earliest cases in Boston, but I mean, I, I think initially when we started this project, I expected it to go from there, maybe stopping around. Uh, you know, the end of the civil rights and maybe mention one or two things about affirmative action. But when we looked at the continuum, there was a lot of there was a lot of um, different iterations. We saw uh, black people who were holding the white churches, holding the white church accountable for their complicity in the slave trade. We looked at um, some other uh, other forms of reparations that um, that were not necessarily for black people, but the U.S. government carried out looking at um, uh looking at cases of a Japanese internment and uh, how indigenous folks were compensated after, um, I, I guess, uh, on the back end of the colonial project, as um, uh, Professor Darity mentioned. Um, so this continuum of sort of drawing this line through history, sort of, I think what it does is illuminates that reparations is an ongoing project, but also that the oppression, that the harm that it that that it's trying to respond to has also been ongoing and is a part of I guess this fabric of the U.S. that um, uh, different localities and states are trying to respond to now. And one um, that struck me is the story of the petition of Belinda Sutton. Here's a clip from the series uh, talking about her case. She sued the Commonwealth nearly 250 years ago. So right now we are looking at um, the original uh, pension petition that Belinda Sutton files in 1783. It's quite amazing. I mean, we do not have many documents like this from black women in the 18th century. So, you know, there's that arc from 250 years ago. (laughs) That's a, I I never would have known that. Um, And I think that drawing that line through history, as you said, Jerome, is one of the most powerful statements about the podcast, which, Soraya, as you have emphasized, is really not, you don't really take a lot of time to debate about, um, is it good, is it bad? It's really about laying all this foundation of what has happened, what are the reasons for it, how to think about it, uh, answering the questions about well, what does repair look like, 
and who gets rep- reparations. So uh, a different focus on how you um, address this subject than I think has been done in the past. It's one of the things that I'm really most proud of about this project, because when you think about it, we've had that conversation. And quite frankly, I think in some cases, media personalities haven't been the most respectful to the idea. I think in looking back at older interviews with some of the figures that were the most outspoken about reparations in the past, you see those folks having to defend the idea against a lot of whataboutism. Um, And again, I think it is because in the past we have not treated the idea with a lot of respect, with a lot of compassion, with a lot of validity. Um, And we can go all day and ask folks whether or not they think it should or shouldn't happen. Um, But our project is really talking to folks who have been in the work for a long time, folks like Professor Darity, who have dedicated their lives to putting forward plans that demonstrate how feasible and valid the idea is. Um, I also don't think that it makes sense to debate whether or not slavery was a moral wrong um, in this country, whether or not it robbed people of their humanity, whether or not it robbed people of the opportunity to build well, whether or not it it and its latent effects damaged uh, its victims up until present day. I just, I don't see a whole lot of value in collecting opinions about it. The other thing that I will say is just that again, The city of Boston is at a place where our local government has decided, and there is now a government-sponsored body tasked with looking at Boston's culpability. And so this question of whether or not it should or shouldn't, that's that's not really where we are uh, in the city of Boston. Well, again, uh, a big part of this is just telling people the history, um, because that's not generally understood by many of us. And this difficult history, particularly because now we even have laws and bans in certain parts of the country where it you can't talk about um, African-American history, frankly. And yet this is very interesting uh, looking at what you uncovered in your in your podcast series that there was a survey um, in 2000, um, William, you talked about this, that found that 4, 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations, and that figure went up to 30% in 2023. What do you account, how, how do you account for that? I actually account for it by, uh, I, I think, people gaining a more accurate understanding of America's past and its uh, its racial history in particular which is so deeply embedded in its overall historical trajectory. And I think that, uh, you know, it's that change in attitude among white Americans that has triggered this backlash that has resulted in book banning efforts, uh, the sterilizing of what's being taught to our students uh, in in our public schools with respect to uh, the historical record of this country. 
uh, I think it's a it's a reaction to that change in attitude, uh, which is a consequence of truth telling, and an attempt to resort uh, back to myth making, uh, to try to avoid having this 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 change in attitude that would lead us closer to having a more just America. Well, one of the things I'm going to play another clip from the series and again the podcast series is what is owed. Um, because I think it illustrates two points. A, what we're talking about, uh, what happened um, during the period of enslavement to make people understand the connection between the enslavement and reparations. And two, this is Boston. We're talking northern cities. And I think for a long time, people were even ignorant about the fact that there was a, uh, quite a bit of enslavement in these cities above the Mason-Dixon line. It was thought to be a purely Southern thing. So first, here's a clip from What is Owed podcast about uh, John Hancock. It's 3 o'clock on a weekday afternoon at the John Hancock Memorial in the Granary Burying Ground in Boston. The site is kind of like a who's who of the American Revolution. There are graves for important figures like Thomas Paine and Samuel Adams. Every year, millions of tourists pass through here to visit the grave of John Hancock. You know John Hancock. Tour guides tout the man's great contributions to the country. But what you might not know, buried beside that much-celebrated founding father's grave is a man he enslaved. His name was Frank. So that's a powerful story. We have to give it up to uh, both Jerome and the editor that's been working with us on the podcast, Paul Singer. It is very powerful. And later on, when we're talking a little bit about what it means for Frank to be buried next to um, John Hancock, we don't sit with the idea for very long. Um, but I know that for the folks who are traveling and doing the cost of the inheritance film that we did a joint event with recently, they go into the idea of what happens when Black people enslaved Black people who were very close or considered very close to their enslavers end up buried beside their enslavers. And we kind of sanitize the idea of enslavement by talking about how close they were when in reality, these were people who may have had families who may have wished to be buried beside their own people that they were connected to, but couldn't because they were not allowed to determine their own lives and were not allowed to control their own bodies. Um, so with the opening of the podcast, we allude to that idea. As I said, in leading into that, I wanted to also pick up something that, William, that you've made clear, that there's discussions about these plans, these local plans that you already said you're dubious about. Um, but you point out that with the exception of Atlanta and Asheville and High Point, North Carolina, for the most part, there's not a lot of discussion about these local uh, reparations uh, in the South, where we know was the that was the, the, the landing place, the entry point for a lot of uh, uh, the the uh, the people who were sold into slavery. Not saying it didn't happen here, as we've just heard, but but from but it is interesting, William, that um, many of the of the moves, such as they are, whether you think they're good or not, are happening elsewhere. 
Yes, it's perhaps not surprising given the fact that uh, American attitudes towards uh, towards racial equity and and reparations are are generally negative, even though the attitudes have have changed in a in a favorable direction. But it's also not surprising that those attitudes might be even more uh, negative in, in much of the South of the United States. But I will say there is one location, one locality in which uh, Kirsten Mullen, my co-author on From Here to Equality, and I agree that local reparations is a good idea. And that's uh, Washington, DC, the District of Columbia. And the reason why we think it's a good idea there is precisely because Washington, D.C. is a federal district. It is under federal jurisdiction. And so reparations for the residents of the District of Columbia who are uh, Black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States should come directly from the federal government. Uh, and that would be a precedent for the comprehensive national program that is needed would also add that the District of Columbia is the only location in which former slaveholders were paid for uh, the emancipation of their human property. And so I think it would be uh, a, a worthy irony if the District of Columbia was the site where we initiated the national program for reparations. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with GBH political reporter Soraya Wintersmith, host for the podcast What is Owed, Jerome Campbell, senior producer for What is Owed, and Dr. William Darity, professor of public policy at Duke University. We're talking about What is Owed, a new GBH news podcast focusing on reparations. Well, now a question I'd like each of you to answer as we close this conversation. Jerome, what would you like um, the audience for this seven-part uh, podcast series to take away if you if there's one thing that you want to make sure that they take away? I think we want people to walk away from this and have the knowledge to have better conversations around reparations. I think that, I think back to 2020, well, 2020, 2022, um, when people were protesting um various uh, black people who had been killed by police officers. And we saw uh, so we saw people who were showing up to these protests who were not who had who maybe hadn't shown up to the protest for Trayvon Martin. And there was conversations had about trying to figure out how to keep this momentum going. And I think as we talked about in the first episode, reparations was one of those ideas. And I think back to even with all those the, the conversations I had back then, and maybe they were quite skeptical. And I think that after doing this work, we hope that listeners just have better, have the language and the tools and the vocabulary to sort of say, actually, it is happening. Actually, um, we do know sort of what these plans would look like. We do have some idea of what these outcomes would look like. And maybe that will be important for this, whatever this next step uh, looks like for reparations in the U.S. And what would you add, William? I think it's important for people to recognize that the case for reparations is not a case that is exclusively based upon the history of slavery in this United States. That we have to uh, realize that if we're talking about the living descendants of persons who were enslaved here, 
that we have to consider the particular types of disadvantages, harms, and atrocities that are being inflicted upon them today. And uh, I think that the racial wealth gap is the most effective economic indicator to capture the kinds of uh, disadvantages and lost opportunities that are imposed upon living Black Americans in the present moment, uh, the cumulative effects of white supremacy across generations. And Zaria. My big hope is that for Black people who largely have had these conversations in their homes and amongst themselves and maybe tried to have the conversation beyond their Black community and been shut down, listen to this work and feel affirmed, understanding that it is a valid idea and not just because we're talking to other Black people, but we're talking to Black economists. We are talking to Black historians, Black lawyers, Black politicians who are making the necessary moves to move this conversation forward. I just, I want Black people to know that you are not crazy. This is a conversation that is happening in a way that it hasn't before, and it is valid. Well, I thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Callie. Thank Thanks you so much. Saraya Wintersmith is the politics reporter for GBH News and host of the GBH News podcast, What is Owed? Jerome Campbell is the senior producer for the What is Owed podcast. And Dr. William Darity is a professor of public policy, African and African-American studies and economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Coming up, in the early days of modern aviation, the young single women stewardesses were viewed as nothing more than glamorous mannequins, often derided as sellouts by women's rights activists. But a new documentary tells a different narrative, that the women who flew around the world, in fact, helped lay the foundation for the women's movement. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 